So um, it's almost six months. Don't know if that means anything to anyone, but um, we first we first formally gathered as found, I think, on the fourteenth of August, um, and I think next Sunday is our kind of mark of six months as an official kind of gathering. Um, and I was just thinking back over that period of time and uh, thinking what an encouragement each of you are. It's, it's really exciting. It's um, this strange thing that didn't exist six months ago. It was just an idea and we hoped that some people might turn up. And uh, here you are. To your absolute credit, uh, even though many times Lorraine and I looked at each other and went, they are never coming back. <laughs> they are so scared of who we are and what it is that we're trying to do that they are never coming back. Um, and my observation, I think, is that many of us are spiritual refugees, if I can kind of use that term. I think um, either we've, we've been through church settings uh, or really struggled with some elements of church settings and uh, looking for some level of authenticity. Not that what we're doing is the only way or the right way necessarily, um, but I think in many ways, well, speaking for myself, that in part we're a people looking for sanctuary, that uh, we're looking for a safe place to explore, to explore what it means to be human, what it means to be made in the image of God, to explore what it means uh, to form community. And so I think what this looks like and where we go next is pretty much up to us. And for me, uh, this message is, is kind of central to that conversation. Um, and I'm pretty keen to get to the conversation, so I'll try not to talk too long. But in the Gospels, and Mina read some of this, but in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, we read this account of how Jesus entered the temple in Jerusalem. And as he walks through the temple's outer courts, he is surrounded by market. He's surrounded by marketplace. And, and when I say marketplace, uh, I'm not talking about something of the scale of the local farmers' markets. Um, these, does anyone know how big the outer courts of the temple in, uh, in Jerusalem were? No? Anyone want to hazard a guess? We're talking that the outer outer courts were 30 acres. And then sort of the outer courts that, that Jesus would have walked into, into this account, were about 10 acres. So we're talking more than 40,000 square meters. So it's a massive, massive area. And there were literally um, hundreds of thousands of people that would travel to Jerusalem from outer-lying parts of Israel, uh, from other countries, and they would come to Jerusalem for Passover. Uh, they would come to Jerusalem for the feast that followed Passover, which was the Feast of um, Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Pentecost. And they were there to worship, they were there to offer sacrifices. And so as a matter of convenience, rather than bring all their animals with them, uh, they would wait until they got to Jerusalem. They would wait until they got to the temple to buy, essentially, sacrificial animals. Apologies to the vegans amongst us. Um, it's history. And so you'd buy doves if you were poor, and you'd buy oxen if you were wealthy, and then if you had foreign currency, then you'd obviously have to change that currency, um, get your money exchanged, and so there were money changers, there were bankers, and uh, so this was an animal market of a, of a mammoth scale. Uh, they think that over the duration of Passover, approximately 
a quarter of a million, approximately 250,000 animals would have been sacrificed during that period of time. And this was all run by the family of the high priest. It was a commercial operation. And it all took place in the outer court of the temple, which was known as the court of the Gentiles. And so Jesus walks into this scene and there's literally thousands of people. There's literally thousands of animals. There's, there's money changing hands. There's haggling going on. There's, there's trade and there's activity. And from what we read, it's quite clear that Jesus is not impressed. But I get the sense that this is not a, a blind fury. This is not uncontrolled rage. We read that he takes time to plait a whip. And so this, I think, is very deliberate. And then he starts overturning tables and there's money going everywhere and there's doves flying around and there's people protesting and the temple priests would have been threatening Jesus. It's sheer pandemonium. And by this time, I think Jesus has clearly got their attention and he cries out, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So why, why do we think that Jesus took exception to what was going on? The activities of the marketplace were perfectly legitimate. They, they were practices that had been done for centuries. People were buying and selling animals for sacrifice. There was currency exchange going on. There was the payment of the temple tax. This was accepted practice. But he says, you have made it a den of robbers. And so clearly we have to think that Jesus took exception to the ridiculous profit that the priests and the religious elite were making from what they were doing. Their exchange rates, their exorbitant cost of animals was essentially robbing people blind. And so we think that they were charging premium prices and that they were profiting excessively from people's devotion to God. But I actually think there was a lot more to it than that. The court of the Gentiles, which is the area that the marketplace was in, uh, was a marketplace, but it actually wasn't intended for that purpose. It was supposed to be an area that was devoted to prayer, it was supposed to be an area that was devoted to worship, and it was the large outer court where Gentiles, non-Jews, who were not allowed to come into the inner court, who weren't allowed to go into the temple proper, could actually come to honour God. And so this was where people were supposed to put aside the hustle and bustle. This is where people were supposed to be still and to be prayerful and to be worshipful. And so this was supposed to be a place of communion, but it had become a place of consumption. Not the inner courts, they were still sacred. They, they were still set aside by the high priests, but the outer courts were full of hustle and bustle and activity. And they were only essentially preventing the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the people of lesser status from participating in communion. Jesus says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Essentially, my reading of that is he's saying your marketplace, your consumerism has not only taken priority in your life, but it's actually now excluding the poor. It's now excluding the least from participating in prayer and worship. And so I think in many ways, this is quite a profound challenge from Jesus. The, the word that he uses here, the word that's used in the text in the Greek is oikos. And we just translate that as house. But uh, it, it's a word that describes a lot more than our understanding of the word house. It, it describes a, a family throughout generations. And so 
what Jesus is saying is that my family through generations will be called a family of prayer for all nations. And so it's not a concept that is specific to place. It's not a concept that is specific to the physical structure of the temple. And what happens is that over centuries, we have made church about place more than anything else. We've made church about buildings and structures. And what then happens is sometimes, hopefully not too often, but we have this understanding often in, in church life that people are only really part of a church if they're there physically. And so you get these uncomfortable, unnecessary and really ill-founded conversations where people are kind of said, well, we haven't seen you for a while. Are you still part of church? This is what happens. We, we, we turn it into place. But Jesus' response and Jesus' cry came from a deep passion for the least of these being valued in the kingdom of God. This, this was Jesus challenging the elitist mindset of the religious leaders of the time. This was Jesus demonstrating the primacy of relationship. And we read in the account uh, in, in the book of Mark, uh, where it says that Jesus wouldn't even let them carry any of the merchandise through into the, the temple courts, into the inner courts of the temple. And so not only did he clear the marketplace, not only did he clear this, this acreage of land, but he then wouldn't let them bring anything through. And so in this act, I wonder whether he was essentially saying, come as you are, just come as you are. You don't need to bring goods. You don't need to bring sacrifices. You don't need to bring animals. In fact, they're now an impediment. They're now a distraction. There's actually no barrier to relationship between me and you other than what it is that you insist on carrying with you because I believe that to Jesus, relationship is everything. It's why he demonstrates radical love. It's, it's why he sends the Holy Spirit. It's, it's why he describes himself in the context of the other. It's why uh, he chooses submission uh, rather than retribution. It's why he uh, refuses violence and uh, allows violence to be enacted upon him. And so I look at all this and I read this passage and try and understand what it is that Jesus was saying for that time, but also for our time. And I have to ask myself, what is my response? What is my response to Jesus? Do I, do I pursue transaction or do I pursue relationship? Do I pursue entertainment or do I pursue engagement? Do I do I shop around or do I look to build deep commitment? Is my engagement with community, whatever form it's in, about I or is it about we? Do I create my, my own institutions, an institution of self? Do I cons uh, choose consumption or communion? Consumption, I think, is about what's in it for me. Whereas communion is about sharing what we have in common. It's about saying we are the body. And so I think in many ways, my life can be very much like the outer courts of that temple that Jesus walked into. It's so busy and full and packed and there's so much hustle and bustle. And it's a place 
of activity that becomes all-consuming. It's, it's, it's a place where I think, and my wife would probably agree with this, that I am at risk of becoming addicted to busyness, that I'm at risk of uh, becoming addicted to activity. And I, I think often I need to take a step back and review the marketplace of my life. I need to put it in its right place. Not remove it completely, but understand that it should be out on the periphery, that it's really just a means to an end, that it's very much a distraction and that it shouldn't have primacy in my life. And I need to remind myself that really it should all be about communion, not consumption. And so I see this as an individual challenge from Jesus, but I also see it as a collective challenge because communion, as I said, is this intimate uh, sharing of what we have in common. And so what we have in common here at Found is gathering around a community table. What we have in common is grace. What we have in common is uh, hopefully the safety to be able to say stuff and think stuff and express stuff without feeling like you're going to be judged or torn down for it. What we have in common is a command to love people with the same love that Jesus poured out on us. When I first began to feel a stirring to found, found, there, there was a phrase that I couldn't shake and it was related to that. It, it, the phrase was, it's time to clear the outer courts. It's time to clear the outer courts. And for me, that was very much a question around what is it that we do? What is it that we do as the body of Christ that are purely marketplace activities that exclude people from the kingdom of God? What is it that we do that, that really is so unnecessary and just gets in the way? What is it that we do that is merely a distraction? It's time to clear the outer courts. And so I imagine standing in the outer courts. I imagine standing and it's clear. There's just acreage and it's just us. It's just people in community, people in conversation, people in communion, people exploring relationship, relationship with, with God and with themselves and with each other and with creation. And, and I try and imagine what that looks like and how that feels and how that smells. And, and I imagine the freedom to explore and the freedom to engage. And uh, as part of our conversation tonight, I'd like you to begin to imagine, if you haven't already, what that looks like for you. You know, what does that look like for you, Joe? What does that look like for you, Dion? What does that look like for you, Mandy and Jeremy and Spencer and Kristen and Giuseppe and even our younger ones, uh, Lily? What, what does it look like if we can stand in the outer courts without the distraction of all these things that we've created that we feel like should be what defines church? What does that look like? Three questions. What is your marketplace? What fills the outer courts of your life? Two, what are the ways that we exclude people from participating in or having access to the outer courts, which is essentially access to community and to communion? And question three, imagine the outer courts are now emptied. It's a blank canvas. What could that look like or mean for your life and or for our faith community? Let's discuss.